from the Miriam Institute. This is the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast. Hello, friends. I'm Benjamin Anthony, co-founder of the Miriam Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Israel Defense and Diplomacy Forum podcast, or IDDF, as we like to call it. It's your bi-weekly update on all hot-button issues relating to the State of Israel. Before I turn the program over to your hosts, I'd just like to ask all of you to be sure to subscribe to the podcast and to leave a rating and review at wherever it is you download your podcast from. Doing so will help us to reach an ever-wider audience. And I thank you in advance of your partnership on that front. Now, friends... Do you remember those old tenets of respectful and substantive dialogue, discussion, and debate? I certainly do, but they all seem to be under attack. And that's why, in this era of stifled debate, the Miriam Institute is really proud to produce the IDDF podcast. It's hosted and led by Chuck Freilich, a former Israeli Deputy National Security Advisor aligned with Israel's political center-left. And he'll be joined by Danny Ayalon, Israel's former ambassador to the United States of America, who's aligned with Israel's political center-right. Now, sometimes the two of them will agree, sometimes they'll disagree, but at all times, they will be bringing their storied track records, internationally acclaimed expertise, and enduring commitment to a secure and thriving state of Israel to the fore for the consideration of you, the listener. They'll discuss, spar over, and analyze matters of real consequence for Israel's future. I'm absolutely certain that you'll find the IEDF podcast as fascinating and thought-provoking as I do. Please remember, wherever you are politically, wherever you are physically, you can engage with Israel via the Miriam Institute. Be sure to visit our website at www.miriaminstitute.com to learn more about all of our initiatives. And now, it's over to your hosts, Professor Chuck Freilich and Ambassador Danny Ayalo. Danny, we have an historic event today, the visit of President Biden to Israel. A visit of an American president is always a major event. In this case, a president who's actually been in Israel, this will be his 10th visit. He was a senator for many years, a foreign affairs chairman, and uh, so, of course, was here a great deal. And we'll be meeting, uh, he's met every Israeli prime minister since Golda. So he'll be in Israel Wednesday and Thursday, and we are recording today, Wednesday, July 15th. 15th. Uh, So he will be here the 15th and the 16th. He will then spend uh, half a day on Friday in Ramallah meeting with President Abbas, and from there we'll be heading to Saudi Arabia for what is really the critical part of this visit. But tell me, as somebody who has helped organize presidential visits as ambassador in Washington and as foreign affairs advisor to the prime minister, this is a big deal. A presidential visit is... 
It really is just a big deal. How do you do it? Oh, it's, it's, it's huge, Chuck. Uh, well, first of all, uh, you're right. By definition, a visit of the President of the United States, certainly in Israel, is a major, major event. I think it's very important. It uh, really enhances uh, Israel's uh, image in the region. Even it uh, enhances its uh, deterrence uh, vis-a-vis uh, foes sure. and, uh, and and even uh, um, friends in in Europe uh, take us, uh, I would say, more seriously um, after a visit uh, like that because it uh, really uh, accentuates the very special uh, relationship and the importance of Israel to the United States and the natural alliance, which is really critical for both countries. Uh, Although Israel is the junior part, but as we mentioned, the United States gets a lot out of it. So I would say usually, you know, when you deal with state visits, um, it is prepared months in advance, sometimes years in advance. If you have countries which are very organized by tradition, like Japan or China or even some European, UK, you know, if you have a, a, a visit, a, a royal visit of the Queen of England, it takes years, you know. <laughs> she knows her schedule five years in advance, so they know exactly uh, how to plan it and to take care of all the contingencies years in advance in terms of the logistics, in terms of the itinerary, in tem- terms of the content. When it comes to Israel, everything is on the fly, you know, <laughs> always. <laughs> and also, I would say, with the United States, especially when you have such uh, upheaval in the international arena, and visits have to be maybe arranged, um, you know, ad hoc from one minute to the next. So it is uh, basically a logistical headache. And the logistical headache is the realm of um, the embassies, mostly. Uh, in that case, would be the uh, embassy of the United States here in Israel, and less so of the Israeli embassy in Washington. Sure. And uh, it also would be very intense um, uh, uh, work by the two offices, the office of the president and the office of the prime minister, including the um, council, the, the National Security Council, which are... Uh, actually, um, they are uh, responsible for the content. So usually, um, you know, I was a um, foreign policy advisor to, to Sharon. And uh, usually before any visit of Sharon to Washington, I would go in advance to meet with, in that case it was uh, the National Security Advisor, my time was Condoleezza Rice, then it was Steve Hadley, uh, of course the... Um, Bill Burns at the time was the uh, Assistant Secretary now of State. The, um, head of the, now the head of, of uh, the CIA. Intelligence yeah. CIA, CIA head the, of the CIA. CIA. And um, so, uh, so, so first, I mean, there are two parallel tracks. The one is when you talk about the substance, the issues, and and here has everything has to be very well prepared. So there are no surprises. So when uh, the the leader of one country lands in the other country, he knows exactly what he's going to hear from his different interlocutors, especially sure. the prime minister in this case. Everything has to be spelled out. And, and they're uh, going to come out with a joint statement, and which was obviously worked out in advance. Especially when you have a joint, uh, uh, of course, um, statement. So all this has to be worked in advance. And it is sometimes a Sisyphic work. 
you know, because sometimes you can get stuck on one sentence or one word in a sentence sure. for for days, and sometimes you have to let the uh, the, the principles make the the final word and decision about one word, uh, yeah. one one word. Sure. And I can tell you sometimes this uh, this the, the 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 complete process is done only on the plane. You know, whether it's Air Force One on the way here or the right. Israeli plane over there, and, and up to the last minute. And, of course, you have to monitor developments all the time. You have to see, uh, you know, uh, what uh, if there are any statements vis-à-vis this visit by other countries in the region or in the world, and, of course, events on the ground. And then the logistics, when it comes to the... Uh, the visit of a president it's it's really a headache he comes with a few plane loads you know of all the equipment you know the president travels it's like um, a, a a traveling white house yeah. with all the advisors with all the uh, electronic gear with all the communication he has to be able to communicate and control the american armed forces Absolutely. including the nuclear forces from anywhere in the world the football which is called That's you right. know the the special the the, the special um, and, suitcase and uh, they bring a few um, marine one helicopters absolutely and um, there's a hospital. It, I mean, it's remarkable. Yes, right. His motorcade uh, consists of more than 100 vehicles, including ambulances, including uh, um, um, communication, you know, uh, um, electronic warfare, you know, in order to uh, monitor and also to jam right. anyone who would like to track whoever is going. It's, it's quite an... Uh, quite an, an, an operation and of course the um, the itinerary itself who is he going to go first the prime minister or the president and there there's also a lot of uh, sometimes uh, push and pull between the uh, the local offices here and um, who will speak at the airport who will uh, welcome him uh, who will join, you know, many of the um, ministers would like to come and have a photo op with the president. If you recall, it was an embarrassing event okay. when Trump came here yeah. and there was an MK of Likud, I believe his name was Oren Khazan, yeah. who uh, just took a selfie with the president on he, the receiving he line. Forced the, uh, he forced the... Yeah, that was... Uh, so you have to plan all this in advance to make sure anything that uh, is uh, undesirable happening or you cannot leave uh, anything for for chance and of course it's a um, it's a major effort with the police with the military with the protocol of the of the uh, the foreign office quite quite an operation it is it's a huge operation and of course Half of Israel will be closed traffic-wise for the two days the president is here. That will be something of a nightmare, but we warmly welcome nonetheless. You were saying how in Israel we always do things at the last moment, which of course is absolutely true, and I have some uh, stories about that that I will tell over time, maybe in future podcasts. But in this case, I think there has been an... Maybe I should call it an Israelification of Washington because I don't remember a presidential visit where the American side was making so many changes and had everything up in the air, including the president's schedule, until literally the last second. I think basically until last night, 
about the time he took off. You remember, Chuck, actually the, the original plan was for him to come here last month back to back with his European trip. Right. But then he and I guess his uh, assistant said it would be too hard physically for him. We're talking about an 80-year-old uh, yeah. man. And, you know, 80-year-old anymore, Chuck, is very, uh, could be 80-year young. Right. You know, 80, uh, the age of 80 could be very young or could be very old. I guess with Biden, it's more older uh, than younger. And this is also a reason why they trimmed his, uh, schedule, yeah. his schedule and to, to give him more space for rest, a lot of rest in between functions. Right. And he was supposed to be going to Panlachim Air Base to see the special uh, display of Iron Dome and the new Iron Beam, the uh, laser system. And in the end, I think they very wisely moved it to the to Ben Gurion Airport, so the president lands and sees it directly without having to travel to make another stop. But let me uh, talk a little bit about what the primary agenda is for this visit. And um, I think there's a formal agenda and an informal agenda. The informal agenda is that the president very much wants to strengthen his and primarily the Democratic Party's pro-Israel bona fides in advance of the midterm elections in November. Actually, the, uh, the president doesn't have to strengthen his own bona fides. He's a lifelong friend of Israel's. And I, I don't know if we will have such committed friends in the future. But clearly the Democratic Party has a problem with Israel today, particularly the progressive wing, the, the center of the party, the, the, the right wing of the party, the moderate Democratic Party, no. But the left, is a, there's a problem there. And uh, since the Democrats are not expecting a huge victory in any event in November, I think the president wants to do what he can to, to shore up the Democrats' pro-Israel image. And I think he also wants to shore up very much the chances of the moderate camp in Israel, which also has its elections in November, a little bit before the U.S., November 1st, to increase the chances of Mr. Lapid and other people from the um, moderate right through the moderate left. And then we have the formal agenda, and I think there are three primary issues and a fourth secondary one. The first issue, um, the one which is really the reason he came to the region, is to restore relations with the Saudis, which have been badly hurt in recent years, Actually, starting with the Arab Spring, the Saudis were shocked by the American abandonment of uh, President Mubarak, coming actually on top of the failure of the American effort in Iraq, which I think for them was, again, a source of shock that uh, their superpower ally, the, the superpower that they rely on for their security, botched things so badly. And then relations with the Saudis have deteriorated, especially since the Khashoggi affair, and President Biden was elected on the uh, on the basis of a campaign pledge uh, to treat the Saudis as a pariah state and to cut back relations, etc. 
Well, it turns out that the world still needs Saudi oil very badly. That was true even before Ukraine, and it is especially true true now. And um, the president is going to try and get the Saudis to up their pumping as much as he possibly can. Things have been really tense to, to the extent that um, the crown prince, who is the de facto ruler, MBS, refused to accept a phone call from the president a couple of months ago. So there's a lot of fence mending to do there. And it's also part of a process of renewing, restoring American prestige in the region that the U.S. is still engaged, that despite what regional actors believe, it has not disengaged. And the Saudis then are also part of the other two primary issues, Iran and regional normalization, because the Iran, the Saudis, just like Israel, are among the primary states concerned by the Iranian nuclear program and uh, Iranian regional expansionism. So one of the primary issues that the president will discuss both in Jerusalem and Riyadh is what do we do to try and handle the Iranian nuclear program in the event that there is a nuclear deal, and I believe that the U.S. is still trying to reach one. Maybe it's a hope against all hope, but still trying to go back to the old deal, old deal. And maybe what do we do in the event that there isn't a deal, which increasingly seems likely. And one of the things that Israel will want to do is to reach agreement on potential red lines uh, well, what actions will we take, the U.S. and or Israel, in the event that the Iranians do X, Y, and Z? For example, if they really enrich up to 90%, the level that you need for a bomb, if we see them renewing their weaponization efforts, and more. A second issue which was related both to the Saudis and to Iran is the regional air defense system which is being established. It's been given the name of MEADS, Mideast Air Defense Alliance, and this is really remarkable. This is stuff that uh, just a few months ago, I think we would have called Yemota Mashiach, the days of the Messiah. This is unbelievable. Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Morocco, Egypt, uh, Jordan, I'm not sure about. And uh, the Saudis quietly joining in a regional air defense system. At, the, at this point, it's mostly about early warning about providing each other with alerts. It's not a defense treaty, and it's not that one country will defend the other, but we did see a case a couple of months ago where this system enabled American aircraft to shoot down two Iranian UAVs that uh, were f sent from Iran towards Israel, and they were shot down over Iraqi airspace, of all things. In any event, the, establishing this new regional system is truly remarkable. This is something that we couldn't have even dreamed of in the past. And we've also heard of some talk of a regional um, economic, a free trade deal, a free trade zone. And if we, again, something which is unimaginable, I don't know if that's going to happen in, in this visit, but we're, it is being talked about. And again, this relates then to the issue of promoting regional normalization. I don't think we'll have a breakthrough with the Saudis in this visit, 
the administration and the Israeli side have been lowering expectations there, but there will be something. And it will probably be allowing Israeli aircraft to fly over Saudi territory, which will save Israeli uh, passengers hours in flying uh, to Europe to, to go west if you want to go east. So that'll be a highly, um, what should I call it? Um, beneficial. Yeah, beneficial, time-saving. Uh, th- that'll be a huge benefit. And uh, there may be some other measures as well. The one issue that I said before, which is a secondary one, is the Palestinian one. And the president couldn't come to Israel without also going to Ramallah. And the U.S. has announced a number of measures designed to address some Palestinian concerns, but almost entirely on the economic level, renewed aid to the PA. But the Palestinian, uh, the American consulate on the Palestinian side of the the border is not going to happen. It's not going to be reopened. The PLO office in Washington will not be opened. And it's unlikely that the president will in any way formally back off Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. At the same time, we see him going, apparently he's going to go and visit the Augusta Victoria Hospital, which is in East Jerusalem, And that's sort of a subtle way of hinting, since it's in uh, the uh, it's in East Jerusalem. It's it's his way of saying, well, the issue of East Jerusalem is still there. It has not been put aside by what Trump did, but at the same time, he's not doing it in a provocative way from Israel's point of view, not causing trouble for the uh, Lapid and the others on the Israeli center in advance of the elections. And we've also seen Israel take a number of measures to address some Palestinian concerns, such as halting, at least temporarily, some uh, building construction in in the West Bank, in legalizing the status of undocumented Palestinians in the West Bank, approving Palestinian housing projects, and a number of other measures. Danny, what have I missed, or what, what do you think to be, should be added to that? No, I think, Chuck, you have covered it pretty uh, well. I think uh, uh, you're right in pointing out that uh, basically the, um, the main agenda is, um, is uh, U.S.-Saudi Arabia uh, relations, or I would say even beyond uh, U.S. and OPEC. That means um, what uh, can be done to lower the um, the uh, oil prices, especially for um, American um, consumers, which pay more than five dollars in their pumps, uh, I think it's a record high. Yeah, and this is something that uh, I don't think it's sustainable politically, and we see it uh, um, reflected in the numbers. Um, the approval rating of uh, Biden is at all-time uh, low, um, 36%, which is uh, really, um, even even if you measure it against other presidents at that time, uh, it's, it's, it's very low. Um, what was also uh, quite um, shocking for me to, uh, to learn is that in recent polls among Democrats, no Republicans, just Democrats, 66%, two-thirds of Democrats do not like to see him in office. They would not like him to, to, run, uh, again. to run again. 
and uh, among um, those uh, mostly they uh, point out uh, the uh, economic uh, issues the downturn of the economy and then um, leadership at large the functionality or his performance also was mentioned there and 10% of the democrats say that he is not progressive enough which uh, to me indicates that uh, actually this uh, the, the progressive i would say um, uh, section in the democrats is about 10% mm. probably uh, but they are noisy 10% they are and uh, and and this is why they that it make the difference and this is why i believe for him uh, pretty much uh, forfeiting human rights issues and especially the murder of Khashoggi by the 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 as uh, claimed by the saudi uh, uh heir to the crown uh, mbs uh, mbs uh, for him to do a bow turn and meet him after he i mean it's it's just amazing uh, the changing of uh, of time uh, because after he was elected Biden refused to take any calls from MBS. Yeah. Now MBS refused to take calls. Yes, from which is which is really uh, an, an embarrassment. It's also uh, I think it's also an indication of uh, American um, uh, loss or sliding in in terms of uh, hegemony. Um and uh, who would have refused uh, a call from the president of the United States just uh, 50 years ago even 30 years ago 20 years ago um and and here uh, i think it's also a matter uh, just to to point out what about what you said about this relations uh, with Saudi Arabia and of course the economic implications uh, that should help uh, Biden and Democrats in the November elections is i think to reassert leadership and um and here again it is it is almost painful to see that the united states is lagging behind it's not actually calling the uh, the shots it's not really changing reality it just uh, um, i would say acquiesce with for instance uh, biden here is benefiting from uh, the legacy of trump now yeah. i don't want to talk about uh, Uh, Trump in other areas but specifically when it comes down to uh, Trump and the Middle East he made a major change he did normalization between Israel and the Arab countries um recognition of Jerusalem the Golan absolutely and uh, when Biden took office the democrats did not really pick up on that uh, they actually they did not um uh, uh, i mean they pretty much shun the 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 the, the region certainly the palestinian issue which is continue to be shunned but uh, for and for good reasons but uh, all the um arrangements chuck what you um, call need the the missile um, the, air the, defense the regional uh, air defense system yeah and 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 possibly uh, economic framework uh, between uh, israel and the arab countries uh, certainly the defense cooperation this has been done um irrespective of american uh, involvement so basically what when trump com- when sorry when biden comes here actually he is enjoying the benefits not of his doing or not of the united states 
which still, you know, the United States is uh, our best friend and ally, and uh, of course I would always uh, like to see American uh, picking up uh, points and getting stronger in the international uh, arena. Whether this will make the United States any stronger, I don't know, because it is quite obvious that here it's leadership from behind. And everything was already uh, laid or was, was uh, cast here by, by the regional partners. So this is uh, the, the first observation I, I have about this visit and the timing of the visit uh, now. When it comes to the other uh, issues, I think they are very, very important. As we mentioned by definition, a visit of uh, uh, the President of the United States in Israel is the ut- of the utmost importance strategically, uh, diplomatically, politically, defense, uh, deterrence. Uh, it, it really elevates Israel on all, this, uh, on all these fronts, even though the main focus was or is for many reasons, as we mentioned, political and otherwise economic, in Saudi Arabia, but the fact that he comes here to Israel is very important. He also is uh, spending uh, more than two days here in Israel. So he's doing the entire round, which is also very important. And here, um, I think that the the, the issues you mentioned, of course, it's uh, mainly Iran and the Palestinians. Um, Palestinians, I'll start with that, uh, as usual, almost, uh, they are put to the bottom. It's almost like an afterthought. And um, and the main thing here between Israel and the United States will be Iran. Um, you mentioned that uh, a declaration or a, a joint statement is uh, expected. And here I would say that... Uh, They're calling it the Jerusalem Declara- Proclamation. Yes, Jerusalem Proclamation or Declaration. And here I think two points should be uh, looked at. The first is a reiteration of the United States' ironclad commitment, not just to the security of Israel, but vis-a-vis Iran, that Iran will never be become nuclear. I think reiterating this in Jerusalem has a weight in itself, which is very important. But in my mind, this is not enough. And this is what I believe is being discussed now, you know, how to cross the T's and uh, dot the I's on the second part of the declaration vis-a-vis Iran, which is that um, in the absence of uh, diplomatic tracks, or if diplomacy fails, then all other options are on the table. And this is something which is very important if Biden will say, uh, that uh, in order to ensure the first part of the declaration that Iran will never become nuclear, that the United States will do everything possible uh, to, to, to prevent Iran and that uh, to become nuclear. And, and I think that would carry a lot of weight in the region. I think it will also help Biden in his visit in Jeddah because this is also what the Saudis expect. This is what the Sunni countries expect, this uh, deterrence against uh, Iran. So this is something which is very important. Okay, so let me make a couple of quick comments on what you're saying, and then I think we should turn to our next topic today, which is actually, this is the first of a series of what will probably be four podcasts that we're planning on the U.S.-Israel relationship. 
and we want to start talking today about how the relationship developed. But before doing so, let me make my few comments on what Dani was saying. First of all, you said that in this case, the U.S. is leading from behind. I think that's actually not such an unusual situation. For example, um, the great breakthrough with Egypt, well, Sadat initiated it. Actually, most people don't realize that it was Begin who turned to Sadat literally days after he was elected, started sending direct and indirect messages to him. To Sadat's great credit, he picked up on it and his dramatic um, psychology-shattering visit to Jerusalem. I mean, he, of course, gets huge credit for that. But here it was a Begin initiative, and in the end, Carter got tremendous credit for that. In point of fact, if you looked at the different peace processes with the Palestinians and the Syrians that unfortunately did not succeed but were very advanced in the 90s and early 2000s, and the peace process with Jordan, which did succeed, in all cases it was actually the local actors who were leading, and the U.S. provided critical support. I don't want in any way to belittle the American role, but the idea of leading from behind in the region I don't think is that unusual. I also think you're right that Biden is enjoying some of the, I think you called it the legacy of the Trump era. Trump did some good things in the Middle East. But let's also not forget what is, at least to my way of thinking, I, I think we may disagree on this, but uh, the withdrawal from the nuclear deal, I believe, was a historic, um, it's, more, it's more than an error. I don't want to use the word catastrophe, but it's somewhere near there. And one of the reasons that we have to form this regional alliance, which is actually a good thing on its own, but one of the reasons we have to do that, one of the reasons that the president has to now come and shore up the American position in the region, why should an American president have to do that, is because of that mistaken move by Trump. The Palestinians, I, I wouldn't say that they're quite an afterthought. They are a secondary issue, but the fact that the president is going to Ramallah to visit, uh, to meet with President Abbas, indicates that no matter what happens, the Palestinian issue is there, and the hopes on the part of uh, some on the Israeli right that we can ignore the issue, or that regional normalization, the, the dramatic move since the Abraham Accords, that this would make the difference and people would forget about the Palestinian issue. I think that's clearly not the case. No matter what you do in the world today, and this I say unfortunately, it's Israel slash Palestine. You can't separate the two. And then just my final comment, you were talking about uh, that in this joint proclamation, um, the Jerusalem proclamation, whatever it's called in the end, it's important that there be an ironclad American commitment to Israel's security and to dealing with Iran and stressing that all options are on the table. The ironclad commitment has become the boilerplate of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. No senior American official can talk about anything related to Israel without repeating the mantra, the ironclad American commitment to Israel's security. The mantra hides the reality, which is that there is a problem today and that there were people, including three Democratic candidates in the last presidential elections, 
Mr. Budgage, uh, Mr. Sanders, and uh, Ms. Warren, uh, all three of whom raised the specter, and by the way, have continued to do so since the elections, of linking American military aid to a change in Israeli policy on the West Bank or Palestinian issues. On Iran, yes, it would be nice to hear the commitment, we will not allow Iran to go nuclear, and, and that's true under Biden, but we don't know who's going to come after Biden, when that will be. Saying that all of the options are on the table, again, it's nice to hear, but the fact is the U.S. does not have a military option at this point. That doesn't mean it couldn't put it together rather quickly if it wants to, but it has taken that option off the table in recent years. Actually, well, um, maybe Obama still spoke about it. Trump, in essence, took it off the table, and Biden has continued to do so as well. But let's turn to the tower. Yes, if okay, I can just two, sure. yes, two, two, two quick comments, comments about um, about Iran and the nuclear. Uh, I mean the sorry, sorry the <laughs> military option. We know that without a credible military option, Iran will not budge. Uh, we know that the only time that they have voluntarily suspended their nuclear activity was in 2003, when they, uh, in their perception, there was a credible nu uh, military option uh, by the United States when the United States invaded, on the one hand, to uh, Iraq, right on their border, from uh, uh, the, the east, and on the border from the west to, to uh, in, in Afghanistan. And, uh, so I think I think we agree here that there has to be a credible option, yeah. but it's not the words that we need so much. Well, it's nice to hear. What we need is the reality. Absolutely, and also the understanding that if Israel needs to act alone, and uh, you know the United States will also understand that, just like they did when we took out the uh, nuclear uh, reactor in Syria in 2007. Uh, there. Uh, their response in, two, in, in 1981 was not as uh, forthcoming as it was in 2007, but I think a lot of things have happened since yeah. then, and I think there will be an American understanding. Hopefully, it, if, I hope it will not uh, come to a nuclear, uh, to a, um, uh, a military option, but uh, if it does, then um, it's better that uh, it will be U.S.-led. But uh, I think all Israelis uh, leaders understand that they must prepare the option that, you know, uh, go together if we can, but uh, alone if we must. Uh, that's a, a, one quick thing about the Palestinians. Um, it is true that, of course, when he comes here, he has to, it's, it's American interest, I believe it's also Israeli interest, to strengthen the Palestinian Authority vis-a-vis -vis Hamas. Right. So his visit in uh, Ramallah is important also if it will bring a... Um, if it will bring about better uh, um, um, uh, defense and security cooperation between Israel and the, and the Palestinian Authority vis-à-vis -vis Hamas, that also will be important. But there are no uh, any achievements for the Palestinians here. You know, they wanted a palace, the American uh, consulate to be open in Jerusalem. This is not the case. Actually, his visit in Augusta Victoria, the hospital in East Jerusalem, is in a way a compromise whereby the, the Palestinians get a very little mm -hmm. gesture by him going, but he's going there as a private uh, uh, visit, and certainly this is not commensurate to uh, opening a, a, a consulate in terms of dealing and recognition of uh, Palestinian interest in 
in uh, Jerusalem. So, in my mind, Palestinians, because of their own doing, always lose. Okay, I wouldn't put it entirely on the Palestinians, but all right. Uh, we will see what happens in the visit, and we'll talk about that some more in two weeks. Hi, everybody. I very much hope you're enjoying this episode of the IDDF podcast as much as I am. Remember, you can submit your questions and comments directly to Chuck and Danny via their email address at iddf at miriaminstitute.org. I'd also like to invite you to visit the Miriam Institute website at www.miriaminstitute.org. There you'll be able to see the missions of the Miriam Institute and to invest in our work by way of a tax-deductible donation. Each year, our organization operates three gold standard tours to the State of Israel. The first, ISAP, brings cadets from the U.S. and Canadian military academies to Israel for a 16-day deep dive into the strategic and policy considerations of the country. All of those cadets will go on to serve as officers in their respective armed forces. We also bring a delegation of active U.S. Army officers for a seven-day tour with the same focus, and we also bring about an exclusive tour of the State of Israel for elite graduate students from around the world, all of whom are bound for careers in policymaking and shaping. Together with our top-tier written recorded and filmed commentary, the Miriam Institute is your one-stop shop for all things Israel. Wherever you are politically, wherever you are physically, you can engage with Israel via the Miriam Institute. And now, it's back to the IDDF podcast with Chuck Freilich and Danny Ayala. So from today's vantage point, I think it would be very hard for many people, especially young people who've grown up in the era of the so-called U.S.-Israeli alliance, the special relationship, hard to understand that in the early decades, until the 70s really, the relationship was very, very limited. It was friendly, it was cordial, but not too much more than that. Now, most people who were at least somewhat familiar with Israeli history, have heard the story of how Truman recognized Israel's independence. I believe it was eight minutes after the declaration, and he was the first foreign leader Eleven to do minutes. so. Eleven Oh my God. You know, I have a, a replica with his own uh, handwriting in my uh, office in, in, on the wall. Really? And, yeah. you know, it's interesting uh, story here. You know, so they have this uh, de facto... Um, uh, recognition mm-hmm. of the, the state of Israel. Now, they didn't know at the time when they uh, printed that what would be the name. So they called it um, uh, they called it the Jewish state. And then you see with uh, Truman's handwriting he crosses the Jewish state and says the state of state Israel, Israel in his own handwriting uh, as, as the word came from, uh, from Tel Aviv right? you know, that this was the name that was chosen for the country. Okay, so Truman certainly gets enormous credit for doing so, and for doing so over considerable opposition within uh, the State Department, the Defense Department. But the story was much more complicated than that. 
And as a matter of fact, the U.S. almost immediately imposes an arms embargo on the Mideast. But since the Arab countries have access to both European and Soviet weapons at the time, it was a de facto embargo on Israel at a time when Israel had no other sources of weaponry. Many in the administration in 1948 believed that the recognition was simply a mistake. Great Britain is pulling out of the Mideast. There's deep fear that the, this vacuum will be filled by the Soviet Union. Remember, we're now in 48. It's the beginning of the Cold War. There's a feeling that American interests lie with the Arab side. Uh, they've got the oil. They've got the numbers in the UN and just numbers in general. That geostrategic American interests lead, should lead the U.S. to support the Arab side. Moreover, there is a deep fear, especially in the Pentagon, that Israel is going to be a weak country, incapable of defending itself. But because of moral considerations, especially following the Holocaust, the U.S. might be called upon to intervene and defend Israel, and that was a defense burden that the Pentagon did not want to have to take. So there's the weapons ban, and, um, well, obviously there's lots of other developments on the way, but in 1956, at the end of the Suez War, Eisenhower forces Israel to withdraw from, uh, from Sinai. By the way, Israel had also taken a little piece of Sinai in 49, and Truman had forced Israel to withdraw from that at the well, as well. The relations, are, as I said, are cordial, they're correct, they're friendly maybe, until the 1960s. President Kennedy is the first president to meet an Israeli premier, Ben-Gurion, not yet in the White House, it's in New York, I believe. At the Waldorf Astoria. Waldorf Astoria. When he was there during the General Assembly of the United of the Nations. US. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so he's the first president to meet an Israeli premier, and he makes the first sale of defensive weapons to Israel, Hawk anti-aircraft systems. LBJ ups the relationship considerably because he makes the first offensive weapon sales, uh, Skyhawk aircraft for people who may remember the name, and some more. But the real turning point, uh, there, there are seven turning points or critical turning points in the evolution of the special relationship. The first one is the Six-Day War because it demonstrates for the first time that Israel is actually not a weak country, which will become a burden to the U.S., but a strong country, a potential partner. And Israel provides the U.S. with captured Soviet weapons and all sorts of information about Soviet military doctrine. Now, at the time, the U.S. didn't really have much access to it, so the intelligence uh, cooperation and this information on Soviet doctrine was of critical importance. This is the first demonstration of Israeli strategic utility for the U.S. And it then leads me to the second turning point, Black September 1970. Some may remember that the PLO had hijacked a, a number of aircraft. Uh, they, they were blown up on the ground, not the passengers, but the aircraft were blown up. Um, some in Amman, and there was another, I believe, in... Do you remember where the other one was? It was in Algeria or... It was in Algeria, the Algeria. first one in Algeria, right. I think 68. But 
But okay, so now um, there's this hijacking. This is taking place at the time where there is a PLO rebellion in Jordan against King Hussein. And actually the king was in serious danger of being toppled. At the time, by the way, the Palestinians were probably around half of the population of the Jordanian kingdom. Today they are well over 70%. But this is an attempt to take over the kingdom. Both the U.S. and Israel are quite concerned. Uh, Jordan had been a, a close British ally and had been established by Britain at the time of the mandate, but it was already a, uh, a country friendly to the U.S., clearly a moderate Arab state, one of the few with a good relationship with the U.S. And even though this is just three years after the Six-Day War, defense cooperation has already begun between Israel and Jordan, and Jordan, the former enemy, starts becoming an interest, or preservation of the monarchy starts becoming an Israeli interest as well. And both sides are deeply disturbed by this uh, imminent danger of the king being toppled. And then he manages to rally, and it looks like he's beginning to win the war. And the Syrians deploy two divisions along their border with Jordan to try and warn off the, the king, to force him to back down. And now we have what is the first case of U.S.-Israeli strategic cooperation or strategic consultation. And the agreement is that Israel will also deploy forces in order to deter the Syrians, uh, to enable the king to continue the battle against the PLO. Should the Soviets intervene, then the U.S. takes that upon it. That's the deal Israel mobilizes to deter the Syrians, the U.S. to deter the Soviets, and in those circumstances, the king now has the time, and he really uh, succeeds in turning the tide. The PLO and a couple of hundred thousand Palestinians are forced into exile, about a hundred thousand or so into Syria, and another hundred thousand or so who had gone through Syria move to Lebanon, and by the way, start creating the, the unbalancing, if I can call it that, of the demographic balance in Lebanon, which leads to the outbreak of the Lebanese Civil War in 1975. But during this period, we also have the first significant American arms sales. Remember, I had said that uh, Kennedy started the defensive ones and LBJ made the first offensive ones. But now Nixon starts opening up the spigot and allowing more significant sales, including, for example, what was at the time the most advanced American fighter, the Phantom, and American tanks, and other equipment. We're now talking a few hundred million dollars in sales each year. This is back in the day when a few hundred million dollars was, was money. I say that with a smile. And I remember vividly, that Donnie, maybe you do as well, there would be cartoons in the Israeli press of Golda going to Washington because she had to go twice a year and every sale was a hard-fought uh, hard win. It was touch and go and we would, Israel would try and get Congress behind it to pressure the, the administration. But the cartoons in Haaretz and other places always showed her, showed her with a shopping bag uh, overflowing with weapons, aircraft, uh, miss, um, tanks, etc., 
maybe today it would be called a, a little bit of a um, of a sexist kind of a cartoon, <laughs> but I, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess today uh, it also would be a a Me Too issue if uh, it was mentioned again that uh, Golda had her kitchen. You know, she right. held her, uh, her, kitchen, her cabinet. kitchen cabinet in the kitchen, you know, but while cooking to all the other uh, members. But um, yes, uh, the 67, as, as you mentioned, was a turning point. And, um, you know, from Truman on until 67, you're right, the, uh, uh, the American administration, I mean, all branches, you know, the, the political one, the State Department, certainly the military and even intelligence kept an arm's length uh, uh, with Israel. Because, as you mentioned, uh, they didn't think Israel would survive. And the second point was that uh, in case of uh, a, an existential threat to Israel, that the United States were, were, uh, was afraid that they would have to come to rescue the Jews in Israel, in the Middle East, uh, because of uh, moral obligations, because of uh, Jewish uh, pressure in the United States, on, on the White House, and then putting American boys and girls in harm's way. All this changed, as you mentioned, in 67. But actually, it's, it's quite amazing. Before the defense cooperation and political cooperation, quite interestingly, uh, Chuck, and this is in your um, area as intelligence expert, the intelligence agencies came first in terms of working together. Uh, and the first time the CIA really uh, began uh, appreciating Israel's in intelligence capabilities was in 1957 when the, um, everybody was um, after the major speech that Khrushchev was making at the Central Committee of the Communist Party in, in Moscow, actually uh, declaring a new era, a new uh, strategy after the uh, Stalin's era. And the one who got, it was the intelligence uh, services of Israel, who got the copy and, and yes. gave it to the United right. States. This was the first sign that they realized that Israel is very, could be very helpful and useful for uh, the United States. And then in 67, of course, before even the war, Israeli intelligence operation brought in Israel a MiG-21, which was then the state of the art of uh, the... Um, Russian or Soviet uh, weaponry, and of course all of uh, this, uh, um, you know, uh, inspection and uh, were, were right. given that to the a, Americans. That was a huge Amer uh, intelligence coup. An Iraqi pilot defected. Uh, yes, and defected the exactly. And uh, and then of course, as you mentioned, came the six, uh, 67 war and everything that came um, with it. And it, Israel was a, a, then a major, uh, I would say, uh, building block. In uh, in the let's say the wall stopping the uh, the uh, Soviet expansion in 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 the Middle East in in many many ways, and then came the third turning point, which was 1973, and here Israel was caught by surprise, and uh, we're in a real difficult time, and the U.S. came to the aid with this uh, massive uh, airlift. Uh, including something which today, um, amazing, today it is being repeated maybe by uh, uh, Putin, but already in 73 there was a, uh, a hint of, uh, more than a hint of nuclear alert 
um, by um, the United States to stop or to deter the Soviets. I mean, it was more than a hint. As a matter of fact, people don't realize this, but the only time the United States ever formally declared a nuclear alert was not during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was actually a much more severe nuclear crisis, but it was 73 during the war because the Soviets were threatening to intervene. Exactly. This is at the point where Israel has turned the tide, exactly. I believe on October 21st, yes. uh, and is about to destroy the Syrian, excuse me, the Egyptian Third Army, which is surrounded. It's the last pocket of the Egyptian forces on the eastern side of the canal. Israel needs just another couple of few days to um, destroy the Third Army. The Egyptians, of course, are in an uproar over this, turn to the Soviets, and they threaten to intervene. And Kissinger does two things. One is he goes to Moscow and saves the Third Army. He agrees to that. But first of all, he declared this nuclear alert to deter the Soviets from intervening. Yep. And uh, and since then, of course, a, a massive... Uh uh, inflow of American uh, weapons, weaponry, technology, and also I think that the United States were benefiting from it because they saw they they saw that Israel can use their their equipment very well, which then became a very you know major uh, selling points and a marketing um, benefit for American um, the defense uh, uh, industry, um, and then. We, I think, we can uh, go over to the uh, maybe the fourth turning point uh, in the in the 70s, and this is with the involvement of the peace process. And um, 1977, um, as you mentioned in the first part of mm-hmm. this, America there also was not in the lead in the beginning. It was Begin's gestures right after he was elected in 1977. And again, this is also, I think, a lesson for for everyone about uh, the, the strong democratic um, system in, in Israel and the desire for peace. Before Begin, uh, you know, when came into power and went, you know, right after he was uh, winning the election, everybody was thinking here, this warmonger is going to burn up the entire Middle East and quite the contrary. He is the one who changed the Middle East, made the peace with the with the Egypt, and here, um, in the beginning, of course, the United States were not in the in the know. But after uh, this first visit of Sadat here and the early negotiations, I think that the Carter administration, Carter himself, just took the bull by its horn, and actually he brought it to a touchdown. And without the American involvement here and American leadership here, uh, there wouldn't uh, have been a a Camp David uh, Accord in 1979. The peace process, the peace agreement between Israel and Egypt, the largest at the time, the strongest Arab country, a peace which lasts now almost 50 years. I Um, was actually involved in the negotiations. I was a second lieutenant at the time, so it was not. I was not in a particularly senior position, but I was involved. I had the opportunity to observe these talks and to participate in them. Uh, it was a transformative experience for me. And I'll talk about it in one of our future podcasts when we talk about the peace process, but it, it was really amazing. But this is a period where 
the U.S. really is pushing the peace process and it's bearing a large part of the costs. For example, one of the problems is that the Egyptians demand that Israel dismantle two brand new air bases that it had just built. They literally completed at this time in the course of the negotiations. They were state-of-the-art air bases for the time and that Israel do this within the three-year period allotted for the withdrawal. And Israel says... This was in the Sinai. Right, in Sinai, sure. And Israel says, look, in principle we're willing to do it, but we have to tell you there aren't enough bulldozers in the state of Israel to build this. It took us a lot more than three years. And the U.S. says, and also we can't afford it, it's a couple of billion dollars. And the U.S. says, well, first of all, it's on us financially, and we are going to bring in the Bechtel Corporation because they do massive infrastructure projects around the world. And they indeed did so. They came in and they worked 24-7 for, they had under three years for this. And there were two ultra-modern, beautiful air bases in Israel itself when this process was over. But, so the U.S. is bearing the large part of the costs. Uh, Egypt becomes known as is Israel as a Camp David country, and the decades of, of, of American assistance to Egypt to this very day, we're talking uh, probably about 40 or maybe 50 billion dollars in USA to Egypt at this point. It's actually because Egypt is a, a Camp David country, it's really because it made peace with Israel. Israel becomes the largest recipient of American aid and remains so for decades. And this is an era in which uh, the U.S. is involved pretty much in everything happening in the region. It's one of the high points of American involvement in the Mideast. Then we come to the, yeah. If I can just uh, sure. mention, you know, the Israeli aid here, I think also in that uh, respect, Israel was, I would say, the 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 best or the uh, friendliest uh, recipient of American uh, aid, because um, it uh, this military aid was all invested. You know, the cost was the the, the money was invested in the United States, helping employment in the United States, helping growth in the United States. Really, um, um, I remember many uh, senators and congressmen that I met in Washington were always vying for um, uh, having in their territory this uh, manufacturing of uh, components and, and other things. And um, Israel was the only one, it's it still, until now, is the only ally of the United States which uh, does not seek uh, American uh, boots on, on the ground here. And we said we will never ask for Americans, boys or girls, to put uh, themselves yeah. in harm's way for us. We can defend ourselves by ourselves, and this is also, I think, from a moral point of view and also from a military point of view, it's a great relief for the United States. So uh, their military aid uh, by many in Washington that I met, you know, a smart analyst said that it's actually an investment also in American security. And, uh, well, was and I think there's no doubt that it's an investment in American security, but there's, there's an argument whether... Uh, Using this money, yes, of course, it produces jobs and growth in congressional districts. But if you took that money and devoted it to building a bridge in that district or schools or hot meals, 
There are some people who would say that that's a better investment. Except, yes, this was also discussed, except this comes from two different budget items, which are uh, actually mutually mutually exclusive so right you cannot american money yeah but right but it's uh it wouldn't have put you know this money that went into uh, israeli uh, military uh, aid was not money that was earmarked for bridges this was something separate and uh, i also checked there was no bridge in the united states in any district that was not built because (laughs) because of of military aid uh, uh, to to israel and uh, and now, if you t- just fast forward today, also um, in many ways, Israel uh, not only showed the great use of American equipment, but also it's upgraded it. It, uh, it also gives it a great uh, um, operational experience and technological um, experience and, and upgrade. So it's it's a two-way uh, street. So during the Reagan administration, there was a research in Washington done that uh, had. Uh, uh, Israel not been around, it would have cost uh, the United States a hundred billion dollars a year at that time. Today it would be much more to keep stability and the security uh, in the region. It was Secretary uh, of State uh, General uh, Alexander Haig, Haig yeah. who uh, said that uh, had Israel not been around, the United States should have uh, created it in order to keep American uh, interests. And he actually equated Israel to a uh, massive uh, air um, a, carrier, a land-based, a, a land-based aircraft, aircraft carrier, and um, and and I believe that uh, it's a both. It's the United States also immensely uh, enjoyed this aid to Israel. Uh, Haig, by the way, was the first American Secretary of State or the first senior American official to come out with a plan at the time for a regional security uh, architecture. I forget the name that he gave to it, but it, he was about f- uh, 40 years ahead of his time. I remember thinking at the time when reading about this that uh, what is he talking about because this was so far from reality. But, well, today it is in the process of happening. I must say, while you were talking, uh, you reminded me of an old uh, gag, which is that Israel is the only country that has ever received massive and generous American aid and remained pro-American nonetheless. This is why I believe it should not be called aid, but defense cooperation. Okay. (laughs) So let me uh, quickly raise (coughs) the fifth turning point, and I think that's all the time that we're going to have in this week's podcast, and we'll pick it up next time. So uh, hopefully leave our listeners in a state of suspense, uh, but they can tune in same time, same place, or at least same podcast next time. So the fifth turning point out of the seven was in the 1980s. This is a period in which the U.S. dramatically alters its view of, of Israel, its strategic importance. We will be interviewing... Uh, Dennis Ross, who was one of the fathers of this change, and it, it begins in the last year or two of the Carter administration. He's a low-level official at this point, and he continues during the Reagan administration. And the idea is that Israel could actually be of real strategic benefit to the U.S. as a regional ally and as part of the broader confrontation with the Soviet Union, the early 80s, is one of the 
high points in the Cold War. The U.S. is looking for reliable allies. Uh, so that's one factor that leads to this. There's also, of course, the fall of the Shah in 79, the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan in 79. But there's another aspect, which is that we have a hawkish, a right-wing American administration. We have a right-wing Israeli government. Uh, Begin was just elected in 77. And the two sides don't really feel comfortable with what was the accepted basis for the relationship until then, the, the normative issue, the, the common heritage. These are people who believe in hard, uh, concrete strategic interests, and they want to add, add that to it. And Israel is now defined for the first time as a strategic asset. That term had never been applied to Israel before. Danny, uh, any last thoughts before we conclude? Well, um, I think it will be worthwhile for listeners to wait for uh, our next podcast because um, it's uh, going to be riveting again with the continued uh, discussion. I think Israel-U.S. relations is a, is a, um, a fascinating uh, story in the annals of, um, of diplomacy, of um, intergovernmental relations, of um, alliances between countries, and there's a lot to discuss. So, uh, Chuck, as always, it's uh, been a pleasure, and uh, looking forward to uh, our next podcast in two weeks. In two weeks. It has been a pleasure, and uh, I think it will be riveting. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the IDDF podcast, a product of the Miriam Institute, hosted by Chuck Freilich, featuring Danny Ayalon. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast at wherever it is that you download your podcasts from, and please consider making a tax-deductible donation to our work via our website at www.miriaminstitute.org. I want to invite you to share this podcast with your friends and family, and to submit your questions and comments, which you can send directly to Chuck and Danny via their email address at iddf at miriaminstitute.org. Thank you again for your time and for your attention, and we look forward to the next time we meet here at the Miriam Institute. Israel's future in Israel's hands.